So we come into the world with all kinds of assumptions that we inherited from our evolutionary ancestors. And then when we're, we're born, we start constructing even more assumptions. And many of those assumptions we might inherit from our parents, you know, that certain people are good or certain people are bad. And so it's not just at the level of color, suddenly it's the level of, of um, the meaning of another person. Okay? And these assumptions then get encoded in our brain because that's all we have access to. These meanings get encoded according to our history. But that's a beautiful thing, right? So a lot of people think, oh, well, this must be awful. If I'm not seeing reality, well, this is really scary then because ah, what am I seeing then? But imagine there was, if we're just seeing in some sense reality, there's only one thing to see. There's only one way to see. Right? There's no basis for imagination or creative then. So by being able to, in a sense, make it up, that's what enables us to be creative and imaginative. And some imagination, some, source, some creative ideas are better than others. It's not like this is postmodern relativism. Some things work better than others. But that enables us to discover that. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to the Collective Insights podcast for Neurohacker Collective. I'm Dr. Dan Stickler. I'll be your host today. And today we have a great guest. This person that has been very influential in me progressing into the neuroscience and human potential aspects of health optimization uh, from the time I read his book back in 2017. But Bo Lotto is a neuroscientist, um, and you know I can't even just say neuroscientist. He's an artist. He's an expert in areas of consciousness relating to precision, um, in awe, and and other aspects of um, how to get the attention of of people working with um, businesses in that aspect. But uh, his research explores the ways in which we experience the world through our own versions of reality. And this is what first got me, got my attention was in exploring, do we really see reality? And um, Bo's book was very uh, informative on that, uh, along with, I think you've, you've had like three TED Talks, which is just absolutely mm -hmm. amazing. Um, but he, he has a lab, um, what is it, the Lab of Misfits? That's right. And, and he does the coolest uh, kind of biohacking research. Uh, and every time, every time I, I read something, I'm just like amazed at, uh, at the depths that you go to to create these uh, states for people. So mm. welcome. Th well, thank you. That's very, very kind of you. Um, what a lovely, lovely uh, um, introduction. Um, and thank you for the opportunity and invitation to speak with you. Yeah, I'm excited. I've got tons of questions today, and I know we have a, a short time window, so I may uh, see if we can get you back at another time to, to dive even further. Um, but let's let's talk about this this main aspect of you know, do we are we actually seeing reality the way it is, or is this some construct of our of our own perception? Are we seeing reality the way it is or some construct? Um, well, it depends on what we mean by the way it is. So first of all, there is a world. The world exists, in my view. Um, there is a physical reality. The question is whether we actually even see it and do we see it accurately. Uh, I, don't I don't think we see the world as it is. And in fact, there's all kinds of research to suggest that that's the case. Uh, and I don't mean by that we see a filtered version, like a reduced version of the world, I think we actually see a, a useful construct, something that was useful to see in the past. We see a meaning, and that meaning is grounded in history. That history could have been a second ago, or it could have been a millennial ago, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a meaning that's grounded in, in um, much of our history that was in fact even inherited. So example, if, if a tree falls in, you know, the, the old phrase, if a tree falls in the wood doesn't make a, um, the tree falls in the woods, does it make a, um, a sound? And the answer is no, it creates energy. The sound is a construct of your brain. If we didn't have a brain, if we didn't have ears, there would be no sound, but there would be energy, there would be vibration. Is that tree a true objective reality though, or is that defined as objective reality? If there's no consciousness there to observe it? Well, 
so the the physical structure would exist would it be would it does it does it have color no it has there's light that's reflected there's light that's absorbed um and then of course ultimately if you think about what that tree is it's an organization of molecules um and when does that organization of molecules that density change from the air around it and to the tree. So eventually there's a, a blurry border between the tree and the air that's around it, which is also true for us. Um, so, and then of course it has, what's the meaning of the tree? What's the meaning of this object? Well, it has, it's a potential infinite number of meanings depending on who's looking at it from an ant's perspective, from our perspective. So, um, so, so yes, there's a physical world, but we don't see it in any literal sense, right? Uh, um, Daniel Schmackenberger, one of the founders of Neurohacker Collective, um, he introduced me to the concept of transperspectival, and it was having all of these multiple perspectives that come together to form a, a consensus perspective is what he was referring to. Um, mm. And he was referring not to multiple outside perspectives but the internal perspective where we we look at an object from the front we look from the back we look from the top uh, we look microscopically we look macroscopically and we collate that into a, um, kind of a agreed upon within our own different perspectives uh, reality for us sure and you could also argue that that layer that re reality has multiple layers mm -hmm. so we can see the surface color we can see that surface color is attached to something that's cylindrical. So, you know, and then we can see that that cylinder is in fact a tree. We can see that tree is part of a forest. We can see the functionality of that tree. So, we, and we can access these different possible meanings um, in some sense simultaneously, but we can also see them in, in another sense independently and individually. Uh, but why, why would we need to see it this way? I mean, why is this actually necessarily the case? Because you could also argue that this is just philosophy, and I'd argue that it's not just philosophy. This is just, in some sense, physics. And the reason is because we have no access to the tree. We have no access to the actual surface reflectance of the tree. What we have access to is the light that's reflected from it, and that falls onto our retina. But our, the information that's falling onto our retina conflates multiple aspects of that tree. So, for instance, it could be something that's uh, small and up close, or it could, you know, a bonsai and up close would project exactly the same as a very large tree far away. From the information that falls onto your eye, your brain literally has no way of knowing. Okay, the um, let's say uh, um, if it was a an ash, so it had a light bark, so it could be something that's um, a brightly a dark surface under a bright illumination or it could be a light surface under a dark illumination. Both of those two different real world parameters would generate the exact same information that's falling onto a retina, mm -hmm. right? So your brain has no access to the sources of the information that we're receiving from the world, which means the only way we, so, so we can't see things directly. The only way we, but it has, it, so if, um, I mean, your, your listeners can actually do a little test on themselves to demonstrate that this is true. They can hold up their finger in front of their face, you know, their index finger, for instance, and they can move it towards them and away from them to line it up with something large and, and that's far away until their finger and that, say, tree is of the same size, right? Well, the fact is they're not the same size, but what they're doing is they're projecting at the same subtense onto their retina, okay? So what this demonstrates is information is meaningless. Information that comes from the world conflates multiple aspects of that world. What's more, it doesn't come with instructions. It doesn't tell us what to do. Uh, so the only information, the other piece of information we have is history. What did that piece of data mean for my behavior in the past? What did I do that was useful in the past when I was presented with this information? And through millennia, we've, we've sort of been encoded with that useful way to behave towards stimuli. So we come into the world with all kinds of assumptions that we inherited from our evolutionary ancestors. And then when we're, we're born, we start constructing even more assumptions. And many of those assumptions we might inherit from our parents, you know, that certain people are good or certain people are bad. 
Um, and so it's not just at the level of color, suddenly it's the level of, of um, the meaning of another person. Okay, and these assumptions then get encoded in our brain, right? Because that's all we have access to. These meanings get encoded according to our history. Um, but that's a beautiful thing, right? So a lot of people think, oh, well, this must be awful if I'm not seeing reality. Well, this is really scary then, because ah, what am I seeing then? But imagine there was, if we're just seeing in some sense reality, there's only one thing to see. There's only one way to see, right? There's no basis for imagination or creative then. So by being able to, in a sense, make it up, that's what enables us to be creative and imaginative. And some imagination, some source, some creative ideas are better than others. It's not like this is postmodern relativism. Some things work better than others, right? But that enables us to discover that. Yeah, you've spoken about how that is an evolutionary advantage. And, and when I talk to people about it, they're like, how is that an evolutionary advantage to not see reality? Yeah. And this is why, because suddenly you can maybe use things in multiple ways, right? Suddenly a brick isn't just, I mean, this is one of the creativity tests. We're, we're helping to develop the curriculum for a school in Budapest right now. And we're doing a creativity test on the kids. And so it's a, it's a very standard divergent creativity test. And so the, the task is to imagine a brick and your, your listeners can do this. So imagine you have a brick and your task is to um, think of as many different uses from, for this brick um, in a short amount of time. Well, it's building houses, yeah, but it could also be a really bad egg cracker, or it could be the false tooth of a brick giant, right? So suddenly, um, this brick has multiple, potentially infinite meanings. I love that. Yeah, that's, um, that's the way education should be done, for sure. <laughs> no question. I'd agree, I'd agree, yeah. Uh, now, one aspect of this that you talk about is the uncertainties. Mm. Um, and can you kind of go into um, what uncertainty, why uncertainty is important and how we deal with it? Yeah, uncertainty is, uncertainty, I feel, I have a very um, strong view about uncertainty. I personally think that almost every single behavior we do, and not just us, is, is an, an attempt to respond to the inherent uncertainty of being alive, okay? from the level of the stimuli that's falling to, onto our eyes or in our nose or onto our skin or into our ears, um, which I was referring to before, the fact that there's many things that can give rise to the same information, um, right the way to the fact that the world changes. Right? The world is constantly changing. I mean, we're experiencing massive change right now. People in Ukraine, they're experiencing tremendous change right now. Um, of course, COVID over the last three years. But this is not just true now or in the last three years with COVID, this is always true. Uh, this has always been the case because the world has always changed and it always will change. And we know from Buddhism, for instance, that change creates tremendous stress for people. Right? Um, and so I would argue that brain and the, our brain, in fact, life is an attempt to deal with uncertainty. It's an attempt to predict what's going to happen in the next moment or the next year, even maybe even the next 20 years, right? And during evolution, the better you're able to predict, the more likely you could survive. So, and this is because not, um, um, that if you, if you couldn't predict, you got selected out, right? Um, so, which is one of the reasons why when we face uncertainty and we, we hate it, because now you're actually, because we view the world through our evolved ancestors, you're viewing the world through their brain in many senses. When you're experiencing the moment of uncertainty, you're experiencing that moment when your ancestors would have increased the chance of dying. Right? Because now you can't predict. It's like, this is a bad idea. Which is one of the reasons why people go to panic. Which is why suddenly there's massive buying of toilet paper. Right. Um, during the COVID times in America, guns and things, because people are trying to create certainty. So I would argue that almost every behavior is not only an attempt to deal with uncertainty, it's an attempt to decrease it in particular. Well, most of the time, not always, but much, much of the time. Going on that question or that, that statement, I mean, 
we we are in and we are a complex adaptive system and mm. you know, uncertainty is like you said it's inherent in life and so what's the difference between the people who embrace uncertainty because i i think that's a beautiful aspect of life and people who fear uncertainty yeah well i mean there are lots of different um differences between them so people who tend to be more neurotic um, tend to have a higher fear of uncertainty why uh, is an interesting question um, people who tend to be more extroverted maybe are more open to uncertainty with that said I personally think that in some sense, everyone has different fears of uncertainty and different um, ways of dealing with it and other uncertainties that they're perfectly comfortable with. So I, I would argue maybe what defines a person is not whether or not they have a fear of uncertainty, it's the nature of the uncertainties that they are afraid of. So I'd imagine even in your own life, there are certain uncertainties that you find much more challenging than others. For some, it might be the loss of a job, the fear of income. And others, it might be the fear of someone dying. Or if you're a child, there can be all kinds of different fears, the loss of a toy, their favorite toy. I mean, there are all kinds of uncertainties that we can be um, dealing with. And, and so which, which ones are actually the ones that actually are guiding your behavior? Um, and so is it that you have some people who are perfectly good with it and some people who aren't? Maybe on average, but I would argue that we all have different contexts where we were quite happy with uncertainty and other contexts, maybe more where we're unhappy with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. right. And then the far more, maybe a, a particularly interesting question as well is what happens when that happens to you? What do you do when you're faced with the uncertainty that you find challenging? Right. Um, and how can you actually manage to get through it? Because a lot of people think that what we should do is be able to sit with uncertainty. Well, in some sense, we should, right? We should become much more tolerant of not knowing, right? I celebrate not knowing. I think not knowing is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Whenever I do my professional speaking, I'll, you know, I, start, I want people to know less at the end than they know at the beginning, right? Even in this, even in this podcast, because, because nothing interesting begins with knowing, right? Can you think of one thing that you discovered in your life that didn't begin with not knowing, almost by definition, right? If you, how could you discover it if you already knew it, right? You had to not know it first, right? So not knowing is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, and there are ways of being and processes by which we can not just deal with uncertainty, but, but thrive because of it. Mm. And that, that I think is a, a, another character of a person. Um. Do you feel like uh, information is ultimately the uh, resolution of uncertainty? I mean, Claude Shannon, uh, the mathematician who founded information theory, that was his statement. And I'm not sure I completely agree with that. No, because information is, information is useful, but it's not meaningful, mm. right? Um, it's what you do with the information that makes it meaningful. It's how you respond in that moment that suddenly creates the meaning. So as I, I have three beautiful gremlins, um, they're um, Zana, Mish, and Theo in 20, um, 2021 and 23 at University in Bristol. And, and I, I've told them, and, I, and I, when I do one-on-ones with people and I work, I work with people, I say, look, um, often we review, and I'm not the first person to say this by any means, often what, we, what happens is we reveal ourselves in moments of when things are difficult. But it's also where we can create ourselves, right? Because it's in that moment that how you respond, what's your default response, re reveals what your underlying assumptions and biases are, often what you don't, that you don't even know you have, much less what they are, right? But then in that moment, you also have the choice. In fact, I would, I would suggest that that's the time when we have the most choice, when things are difficult, right? When things are easy, right? Well, the, the, the response is obvious. Keep doing whatever it is doing. In some sense, you have no free will because you're obviously, unless you're a nihilist, you're going to keep doing what you were doing, right? But when things are really difficult, someone shouts at you or um, you feel a sense of frustration or, um, or anything that is um, uh, instills something negative in you, at that moment, you can re respond reflexively 
according to your default assumptions, uh, maybe go to anger or hate. Very natural, in some sense, could be very useful in that moment, depends on what the context is, right? But you could also not do the obvious. You could also look away from the obvious. It's at that moment you have a choice. And then what you do will become the meaning of that moment. If you respond with hate, that, that information now means hate. If you respond with grace, suddenly that information means grace, right? The same piece of information have different meanings depending on how you respond to it. Because, and that's what's going to get encoded in your brain. And that's what will affect your future reflexes when you're, when you're presented with similar stimuli. So do you think, and this is from my own experience, but I feel like uncertainty has increased as I've gained knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, that's because I, you, I think you're falling on the side of wisdom there, right? <laughs> um, right? And in some sense, that's also just maybe a literal statement of truth. I, I have a wonderful friend. Um, his name is Dwayne Michaels. He's a, um, probably the world's best known living photographer. Uh, how old is Dwayne now? He's 88, I think. Um, and he tells me as he gets older, he gets smaller and smaller and smaller, right? Because the world is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. I, he's embracing the wisdom of not knowing, right? Um, but he's, and, and for me, I find that um, knowing things is not terribly interesting, right? In that regard, intelligence depends on how you define it, but it's not terribly interesting. You know, things that you can memorize from a book or facts and figures, things like this. But understanding is far more interesting. So as we get older, we can know less, but maybe we can understand more. Um, and, and then we can embrace the fact that we don't know. And within that comes the humility. And I would argue that humility is the creative, you know, the engine of creativity in many senses, because humility embraces the not knowing. And it's again, only from not knowing that you can create anything new. But if you're always knowing, right, if you're always this sort of arrogant person that I know everything, how can you ever create something new from that position? Right. And that's what you work with, with these companies is how they can get that, that innovation going with with things like play right for instance for instance yes so i do a lot of work with um senior leadership teams for me i'm, I'm very interested in working with the top leaders of, of organizations whether they be political or, or um, financial or in any or educational uh and the reason is because that that those leaders create the culture that will enable innovation but to do so, they have to engage in a certain way to create that culture. They have to lead by example, admit mistakes, various other things. But they have to create an environment that embraces not knowing. Um, not that that environment just sits there, because eventually you need to get to what I call closure. Um, so yes, we work with these brands and organizations um, in order to not just have them be more successful at whatever it is they do, you get that for free when you create an environment of perceptual, what I call perceptual intelligence. But what also you get is someone who actually has a more fulfilling life. You also get an organization that has a stronger reason to exist, that's actually adding value to the world through its processes or, or um, products, et cetera. And it's, and it's empowering that value in their audiences. Right? Um, and they and you get that by getting them to embrace and engage with uncertainty because they're constantly facing it. You said that uh, that uncertainty, that, that play is one of the areas where uncertainty is like the greatest thing for us, and we thrive with that uncertainty in that situation. Um, how can an individual, aside from being in a, in a corporate team, how can an individual? kind of cultivate that, that creativity and innovation within themselves by, uh, by designing play? So first of all, there, aren't a, there's no, there isn't a set of rules. So often people are looking for rules. And I, 
And I try to avoid giving people rules because have you ever been successful by following a recipe? Well, maybe if, you know, if you're a sous chef, but a chef has never been, you know, they create the recipes. They don't necessarily follow the recipes, right? So it's the distinction between a you want to be a chef rather than a sous chef. There's nothing wrong with being a sous chef. There's a very important role. But if you want to be creative and innovative, you need to be the chef. You need, but, and that's a mindset. It's a way of, more than that, it's a way of being. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of being that transcends whether you're, you're at work, you know, you don't turn it on when you walk through the, the door of your office. This is how you engage with your partner. This is how you engage with your children, if you have them, with your friends, with anyone, right? It's a way of being. And it's a way of being that actually seeks understanding, that actually seeks conflict, creative conflict, doesn't avoid it, but avoids the tendency to not want to move in conflict that seeks discovery, that seeks understanding. Because when you seek that understanding, when you seek um, discovery, um, then you're engaging in the world with curiosity. You're engaging the world with questions rather than with answers. Um, and in order to adopt that sort of mindset, that is effectively science, right? It's a scientific mindset. But what is science? Science is this way of being. It's the space where we actually love uncertainty, we're open to possibility. Um, it's inherently co collaborative. It's intrinsic rewarding. Well, these are the same parameters that actually define play. So science is nothing other than play with intention. Play has no intention by definition. So if you layer intention into play, now you, now you have science. But I'd argue you also have everything that is creative. I'd say it's all play with intention. Right? Yeah, and that creative piece, I can remember you did a, a talk where you were, uh, you were doing brain scans on people at a Cirque du Soleil event, and yes. you were assessing their, the brain activity following uh, periods of awe. And it was interesting to me that the prefrontal cortex turned down, but then, then you saw a sudden increase in the right hemisphere activity of the brain. Yes, well, you well remembered. Yes, yeah, so this is a study we did with Cirque. It was, first of all, Cirque was great to work with, wonderful to work with. And we've done a number of studies with lots of other organizations. But this one, that, and, and this one was all about the power of awe and wonder. And people have been asking for hundreds of years, what is awe and wonder? And, and some people like Jonathan Haidt had been exploring this question. And they had some very important insights and, and ways of thinking about and finding it. But no one had really captured it using um, brain recordings. Um, much less actually the other findings that we, we were actually built upon their initial findings. And what we discovered is that what when, as you say, the prefrontal cortex went down, but their default mode network increased. So it was as if they felt more sort of conscious and aware of their thinking about their place in the world. Right? And then shortly after that, their prefrontal cortex became more active in a particular asymmetrical way that was correlated with wanting to step forward into the world. So it's as if you're thinking and you're thinking about your, your identity, how you're connected to the world, and now you want to step forward into it. S related to that, people's tolerance to risk increased. They wanted to take more risk. Um, they didn't have such a need for certainty. They were more comfortable with sitting with uncertainty. Um, they um, they're, uh, They actually, even change their perception of themselves historically. We asked them afterwards, are you someone who's more likely to experience awe? People after the performance were more likely to say yes than before the performance. In other words, they actually changed their perception of who they are in relation to awe and wonder. They became more pro-social. They're more willing to support others, more willing to open the door for another person, right? And in fact, I would argue it's one of our most powerful, powerful perceptions which can actually be weaponized, by the way. Awe, like empathy, is not necessarily itself a good thing. Right? It could be good or bad depending on how you apply it. Um, so, um, uh, and I can give you all kinds of examples of how it can be weaponized, but let's, thinking about the positive, it facilitates creativity. It makes you want to step forward into not knowing. Right? As Duane says, it gives us the courage to overcome our cowardice. Love that. Yeah. Now, I, have, I have two questions that come out that I'm thinking of as you're talking there. Um, 
One is on the default mode network. Um, so I want to come back to that. But the, the other thing I wanted to mention, and we work with all, uh, with our clients all the time. I mean, our, our metric every year to say whether the client has, has uh, progressed um, yes. is the quality of life inventory where we check off areas of play, creativity, love, relationship, uh, finances, work, all of that. And, and we work with them during the year when we see areas that are, that are uh, suboptimal for them. But um, when we work with, with them, we, we kind of take them into these all experiences. But the, the state of awe, which I, I think it was Keltner that was mm, yes. a researcher, um, he talks about how awe can also be fear. And, you know, I've always thought of awe as just this, you know, smaller, you know, this, this feeling that wouldn't be fear in my, in my, in my uh, dictionary, but I can see that when they talk about it and when they talk about, you know, seeing a volcano or, or seeing Hitler, people yeah. actually experienced awe when seeing Hitler, but it was a fear-based awe. This is right. This is true. It's when you feel small, but, um, but and at, at one level, but also connected to the world around you. Um, and so, yes, people, for instance, World War II, would report, when the Blitzkrieg would be happening, they would report this, this sense of awe and wonder at this, you know, this massive thing that's beyond them, that's out of their control, um, that they can't really explain. Um, and they have to change their perspective in order to explain it. This is one of the, the ways that, that Keltner and Haidt tried to um, define awe, as opposed to wonder, as opposed to surprise. Um, and... But what's also interesting is that um, as a consequence, it can actually be used to manipulate. So, for instance, the military parades, you know, that's designed to experience, generate a sense of awe. Well, what happens? Well, now you become open to suggestion. You feel connected to the people around you. So it's a great way of creating a sense of bonding or patriotism, etc. And then now I'm more willing to listen to whatever it is the leader is telling me. Churches use awe and wonder. It's one of the reasons why you have the dome was for the architecture was for sound. So the choir's voice would go up, the, who couldn't be seen, would go up into, the, up into the sky and then reflect back down onto the congregation from the dome. So you had all this amazing sound coming from above. That creates awe and wonder. Now you feel connected to the congregation. I'm more willing to listen to the priest or whoever is um, the person speaking. Um, and now you can use it in that regard. Um, we've actually used it in the lab to actually, in some sense, manipulate behavior. Uh, and so we were working with um, uh, Charles Koch. Um, in some sense, people might say surprisingly enough, because they maybe have very different views of ours. But with that said, we're working on toleration. So for us, it was important to work with a group of people who maybe have different views. But it turns out, you know, there's, um, it's, as everything, it's always more complex. But so we, we collaborated on a study of how do you get people who have differences to speak to each other? So we looked to see, could we use awe to facilitate toleration towards difference? And we were able to. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree, right? But how do you know if you can agree if you can't actually sit and have a conversation? How, do, how can you, I always think it's very important, this slight divergence, um, but how, I always want to separate validation from understanding. If you're seeking understanding, you can talk to anyone. If you're seeking validation, there are very few people you can speak to, right? But how do you know you can validate someone if you don't actually understand them? And to understand another person is not just to know what they did or where they did it, it's to know why they did it, right? And sometimes they don't even know why. We often don't know why we do what we do. Right? So first you have to get that understanding and then you can say, okay, now I understand, God, you know, based on that perspective, that makes complete sense. I want to disagree with your perspective though, but I can see how it's internally consistent right? as much as I don't agree with it. Right? And by engaging with that awe and wonder, that curiosity that enables you to get that understanding of other people, because sometimes you completely misread the situation. This happens in couples all the time. Most arguments are over arguments of meaning, not what happened, but why it happened. Mm 
Yeah, I I experienced that myself. <laughs> I I find that very surprising. <laughs> I think it's called being human. <laughs> right, and and you know the you were talking about um, in in one of your I, I think it was a TED talk. You were talking about how that when when people have beliefs and you're presenting them with all of the obvious evidence that that belief is inaccurate you actually reinforce their belief whereas if you take the approach you just talked about you actually have a much greater chance of having them reevaluate that belief yes so um you're absolutely right so often not for everyone but often if we're in a disagreement and i present you evidence to show you're wrong very likely you're going to hold even stronger to to your view so in some sense i've pushed you from from an idea to a belief to a religion to faith because ultimately if i if you have no evidence to confirm what you believe the only thing you have is faith well once you have a faith based belief then you can't shift or you can but it's very difficult to shift someone because by definition you can't present any evidence to convince them and this is so often the case when people try to convince another person it's called you know information deficit approach scientists we used to con consult for the UK government on how scientists could communicate climate change information to the public because this is something that my lab does and I do with public and communication science and the argument was don't just use data to try to convince someone right? that's what you do maybe for a scientist or people who have that kind of ilk but that's not going to convince someone who doesn't have that kind of perspective right it needs to be presented in a different way so um so yes, if you present people with an evidence that, that in an argument where they don't want to shift, especially when they tie their identity to it, they're often more likely to hold on to it, unless they're seeking understanding. So a lot of times in conflict, people say, well, what you should do is find common ground. So, you know, you and I might be in conversation. It's like, oh, you like, um, well, I'd, I'd be thinking of Arsenal as in the football team, as in the soccer team in London, but, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know what, what's the Seahawks. I was born in Seattle. So, you know, we might agree. Oh, you like the Seahawks. I like the Seahawks. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I'm trying to find common ground. Now let's talk about Trump, right? So suddenly, um, what I've really done is just manipulated you. I've lured you into thinking that we have an agreement. And now that was never my intention. What I wanted to do was to confront you on something that I disagreed with. But if I went to, to you and said, you know what? I just fundamentally see, I just disagree with everything you're saying, but I really truly want to understand why you feel this way, because I might learn something, or um, I, you know, I might be wrong myself, or in the very least, I'll understand you better, and I'll know you better, right? My feeling is that people are far more likely to engage now, and far more likely to trust the other person when you approach simply with honesty and humility than just to find common cause in order to then pull the rug out from underneath them. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's where our society has gone completely away from the, the, I mean, debate has been the greatest learning experience in, in human history. I mean, from the, from the Greeks to Benjamin Franklin's Junto. And I mean, debate was about about discussions and knowledge and not about trying to convince somebody of something. And now with all the cancel culture and with all the polarization that we're getting, I mean, cancel culture is essentially eliminating debate from our society right now. And yes. it's scary that we're going down that road. It's so true. Now, in some sense, I'm, I'm a believer in a debate and like in most of my answers to anything, it's always a yes and a no. <laughs> um, so I, I think debate's a wonderful thing, but also I think it can also be a, a fu futile thing. So myself, whenever I get into conversation with someone, and especially in my lab with someone, for instance, Rich Clark, who's been with, we've been working with for ages, we will constantly get in conflict and debates, right? But we love it. And the reason is because I will question what he's, asked, he's saying, but he knows it's not because I doubt him or I don't trust him. It's because I'm trying to understand it. The only way I can understand it is by probing it, probing it with a question. Like, ah, that doesn't make sense. What about this? What about that? Right? 
And it's not that I'm doubting, again, not, I'm, to reiterate, it's not because I'm doubting, and he doesn't hear it as me doubting. He doesn't get defensive, like, wait a minute, you know. He doesn't take it as a personal thing. He understands that I'm trying, and I understand the very same thing from him. Okay, so that's debate. But what I don't like about debate is the attempt to convince. Mm -hmm. Because what that is trying to do is to stand still. Right? And now you have a tug of war. It's two people basically trying to pull the other person to their side. And then you have a so-called winner. But again, things are always more complex. There's always going to be an element of truth in, in both sides. In fact, yet another side that hasn't even been considered. So what I'm passionate about in debate and conversation is movement. Because life is movement. Things that stand still die. So I find it super ironic that people are always trying to stand still. Because in nature, if you stand still, you got selected out. Why wouldn't you want to move? Right? I mean, for, I mean, how awful to actually be static all your life? How awful would that be? And relationships that remain static often just die. If not in the short term, in the long term. They need to be in movement. People need to be in movement. And the only way you do that is by getting in conversation and debate and, and, and trying to understand. Oh, I actually will take, take a side that I don't believe in sometimes when I'm talking with somebody. If I'm in complete agreement with them, that I'll take the opposite yeah. uh, approach with them. And just so I can see what their reasoning is yeah. behind it. And it's been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, in my lab and other people, I, I agree, I do the same time because I find I myself don't understand why I have the view. I might have a very strong view. And very quickly, through a conversation, I realized that I don't actually knew what I thought I knew or that I had all kinds of assumptions. Now, sometimes I'll come back to the same view, but now I have a far better understanding of why I have it in the first place. Right. It was maybe just an intuition, but I held so strongly to that to intuition, I just assumed it to be laws of physics, right? But it wasn't. You know, most of our beliefs aren't laws of physics. They're movable. Thank goodness. Well, beliefs are the, what is it? It's the, it's the one subjective reality that, that is ours, right? That yes. We that own. Is, that, well, or we inherit. Inherit, true. Yes. Right? But we behave as if we own it, and we behave as if it's true. Now we've jumped around on a lot of topics because I just wanted to get get people exposed to these different areas uh, that you're uh, really putting the research into. Um, but I want to close out with an area that I'm, I'm very curious about, and this is psychedelics. Mm. And um, in our clinic, we use uh, we use ketamine. And we will actually use it during uh, neuromodulation. So we will we will do uh, neurostimulation with different um, different modalities, and then we'll have them do ketamine nasal spray before the treatment. And we found that the neuroplasticity goes through the roof with this stuff. Mm. And I think there was a recent study, and this was bringing me back to that the DMN uh, default mode network question I had. In a lot of these studies, they're seeing that anxiety and depression are getting coded into the default mode network, and they're very locked in, and the medications aren't disrupting that, that network. They're just kind of putting the Band-Aid on it, but they're finding with, with the psychedelics, uh, psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, and even, even to some degree MDMA, that it is disrupting the default mode network to allow the brain to access a different response, a different way of looking yeah. at something rather than being in that, that default mode. That's right. Um, that's exactly right. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I, uh, I'm a fan in some sense of these. Um, but again, I'm also um, not wary of them. I'm wary how they can be used because they can also be used in a way that doesn't facilitate people. And I'll explain maybe the differences between those two. Um, but yes, just to, to agree and maybe build on what you're saying as far as kicking people out of a cycle. So think, people can think that um, as a metaphor for the brain, in some sense, it's almost a literal metaphor, that the activity in your brain, you get a stimulus and your brain will generate a pattern. Okay, Think of that pattern like a whirlpool. 
everyone knows what a whirlpool is. So it's called a stable state. It's a stable attractor. It's called formally an attractor state. Okay, it's an emergent consequence of the interacting of stuff. Your brain cells are interacting. You get kind of like a whirlpool in your brain, a pattern of activity. And now the stimulus comes again, and the whirlpool happens again, and again, and again. And now think of that whirlpool getting deeper and deeper and deeper, right? Now, before it can only just move a log, but now it can move a whole ship, right? It's going to get trapped. It has a real power. Now, the deeper the whirlpool, the harder it is to get out of it and the more likely that the stimulus is going to come in and go to the same place. Okay, so what could be happening with certain, um, metaphorically at least, with certain um, antidepressants is just trying to shallow the whirlpool, as opposed to now shaking the water. Imagine shaking the water, it's like the whirlpool's disrupted for a moment. Now it means that when a new pattern stimulus comes in, a slightly different pattern can now form has the potential of forming. So when psilocybin can help keep, keep people out of depression for a, a significant period of time, is in some sense, it's not because the psilocybin is kicking around for six months, right? It's because if I'm trapped in this whirlpool and if I'm feeling depressed, and if you show me, if you're looking at me in a neutral way, I'm more likely to see you as see, I'm more likely to see your face as not neutral, even angry or something negative towards me. Okay, even though you're complete, everyone else would say neutral, I'd say negative because I'm feeling depressed. Okay, now suddenly, if I kick myself out of that, well, maybe I see you as neutral because if I saw you as negative, maybe I respond to you in a negative way as well. And then in doing so, well, you respond to me because, hey, I was just frowning, I was upset, you know, and it's contagious. So now it's suddenly it's like everyone's around me is negative. Well, you know, we, we create in some sense what we feed back. So now I see your face as neutral. Oh my goodness, he's, he's you know, behave, behaving towards me not like I thought. Now I behave towards you a little bit more positively. That causes you to behave towards me positively. Now we start a positive feedback cycle that slowly takes me out, right? And that was because I disrupted the whirlpool. I added some noise through creating more connections. Is, is that what you were seeing in the people with the states of awe when you talked about the increased activity of the default mode network? Was that a similar shaking up of that water? Um, it depends. I mean, it could be. Yes, it could be suddenly creating the opportunity now to respond differently. And that's the power of it. Now I'm set up to say, okay, give me that thing that was previously negative. Maybe I'm going to respond to it differently. Now it's my response that creates a meaning for it. That meaning becomes what I call it's your future past. What you do now becomes part of your future past. If everything you're doing now is a consequence of your past, then what you do now becomes part of your future past, right? Um, so you're effectively determining your future reflexes by how you respond now. Okay. So how can it be used in maybe not such a good way? Well, when people use these um, substances in some sense to revisit their traumas, that can be important when working with you know, um, certain individuals, but where they continue to resurface these things over and over and over again with the sense that they think that they're actually doing something by doing that. Right? And it's very important to look at these things, again, with support and in the right way, etc. Um, but, but that isn't enough. One then has to, to act upon it, do something with it, right? I talk about how sadness is not what keeps us in bed. It can give us the motivation to get out of bed, right? We don't get shape in order to live. We get in shape while living, right? Yeah, I love that. Um, we're coming up at the end here, and I, I would love to at some point come back to this and actually dive into all the five topics as one entire podcast. <laughs> uh, it's, it's my, my personal desire. Um, but to close out, um, tell us something exciting that, that you're working on now, something that's really got your, uh, your all going. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, we, I, we're doing a number of different projects. So there's one where we're working on the um, power silence. This is for a brand. Um, a group, um, and and that's very interesting. Um, the power of silence, and, and and it turns out that silence isn't what's significant in of itself. It's contrast. It's having science in relation to noise, right? Similarly, we're working on a project on home love, the power of 
the home for decreasing anxiety. Uh, and we're also, we just finished a um, study on, and we're going to continue with it, on chronic pain. And um, how might we be able to help people who are experiencing chronic pain? And to what extent is chronic pain a consequence of uncertainty? And a way of dealing with uncertainty in other aspects of one's life. Um, and so where the emotional becomes somatic, becomes physical. And that emotional source could be uncertainty. Uh, so these are some of the and and people listening to podcasts they can actually take part in these experiments actually on on the lab's website. And what is that website? Uh, so the lab's website is is the labofmisfits.com. Great. And we're also doing other experiments like you're on your deathbed looking back. What is it that you want to see? What is your life purpose? And then correlating that with um, how people deal with uncertainty. Uh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Can't wait to see the uh, the data coming out of that one. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to share such great information with us and to let us come away knowing less than what we came with. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Bring us back all full circle. Yeah. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.